Welcome to episode 29 of An American Journey, a podcast about all things American. My name is Michael Moran. As ever, I'm going to be joined by Julian Bishop, author of High, Wide and Handsome. And this podcast is hopefully informative for those visiting America and want ideas of places to go to, as well as Julian and I will offer our insights into all things American. Julian, we're going to Cape Cod today, aren't we? That's right, yes. Cape Cod, and I think we'll also cover a little bit some of the islands off Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard and so forth. Okay. And in this episode, we're also going to look at small town museums. I think, Julian, you're in for a treat. I think you're in for a treat because these are things close and dear to my heart. Excellent. The Rivette trains, that's good. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Let's go to Cape Cod first and foremost, Julian, because I'm going to say for... Um, UK visitors, I suspect if you've done any research into Cape Cod, what you will have seen are lighthouses and sandy beaches. And I can say that's exactly what you get. That's some beautiful scenery. Julian, tell our visitors more about Cape Cod. So Cape Cod is a peninsula, and the top of this peninsula is close to Boston. And indeed, there's a ferry from Boston to the top of Cape Cod Peninsula. And then the bottom of the peninsula is close to uh, to Rhode Island. It's technically, I think, technically it is an island. It, it is because there's a canal between it. So there's a bridge over it, isn't there? There is one time that you should go to Cape Cod, and that is the summer. Uh, it is a summer destination. June to October, that's the time to visit. The temperature will be warm, but not too warm. Have you seen the movie Jaws, Michael? Yes, but a long time ago. The beach you see at Jaws, that is the type of American beach that you get on Cape Cod. You know, often very traditional uh, seaside uh, places of entertainment for America. But let me say first and foremost, Julian, is, is you know, Jaws are not a threat. Sharks not a threat in, in Cape Cod, are they? Obviously, Jaws is a film and, you know, those things don't happen. I, I believe there are sharks there. There are sharks in every ocean, but I, I, I don't remember what the shark attack figures are, but they are minuscule yeah. and, you know, people shouldn't uh, worry that they're going to get eaten by a shark if they go into the sea. Yeah. But it is the type of beach communities there, you know, where they have uh, mini golf and they have boardwalks uh, and all the places are incredibly familiar in terms of their names, aren't they? So it's a place called Sandwich. There's another place called Yarmouth, Falmouth, Barnstable, Princeton, Truro. Most of them have British names. I mean, it's a different from a British beach experience, but it's but there are also a lot of similarities as well. So two things, Julian. Going back to the climate, it's probably fair to mm-hmm. say it's cooler than the mainland in the yeah. summer, but warmer yes. in the winter than the mainland. That's right. One of the reasons why it's popular with US visitors is that the climate, it is, it's a place you go to because it is cooler and therefore you have, I suppose, quite a lot of seconds homes there. Some very nice properties right. of people who from Boston or whatever who are coming to the summer. And it is a, I imagine it's one of these places where in the summer the population increased three, four, five-fold. Well, that's right. And indeed, in episode 32 of this podcast, uh, which I recorded yesterday, uh, won't be released, obviously, until late July. Uh, but in that episode, um, I talked to somebody called uh, Wendy Horgan. Uh, she lives in Boston, and, and, and they have a second home on, uh, on Cape Cod. 
And I think that's where they spend a lot of their weekends. And the second thing is related to a previous episode about names. Obviously, the origination of all the names, and you, you quoted uh, the Chatham, Falmouth, Barnstable, Yarmouth, Harwich, was because when the Puritans came over here, they took their original town and brought it with them, so right. to speak. If you're driving there, it's amazing just to see so many familiar uh, UK towns. And how would you describe the feel of it? It's a seaside, isn't it? You know, and you know, and, yeah. and I said at the outset, it's sandy beaches. Yes, very pleasant. It's quite green. I mean, great beaches. I mean, I, my sense is it probably does get quite a lot of rain. You know, because it's in the ocean, so to speak. Small little places. Very, you know, when you're driving through it, the big metropolitan areas, it's quite nice. Small towns and villages. Well, Hyannis is a little bit um, built yeah. up, but apart from that, most of them are tiny little places. It's very pleasant. It's a really a mixture, I think, of kind of your idyllic British traditional seaside place, and it's been Americanized. A lot of mini golf, a lot of hikes, uh, a lot of people biking, people, and there's a baseball league there. Did you know that? No, I did not. No, the Cape Cod Baseball League, college uh, league, I think. Yeah. What I didn't know, Julian, till I did my research, because I I talked earlier about the Puritans, of course. It was originally founded by the Vikings. In fact, the claim that Leif Erikson was the man who discovered it. Yes, I think it's accepted that uh, he was the first person who uh, discovered mainland America. And then there are some other islands just off Cape Cod, aren't there? So you've got the island of uh, Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket and Elizabeth Island and Chappaquiddick. So you've got all of those islands. Have you? Did you go to any of those No, I islands, didn't. And I suppose Cha- is it Chappaquiddick? Its main claim to fame is... Ted Kennedy, who was one of the Kennedy brothers. I don't know. I think it's a pretty sad story. Yeah. So he was driving with a, a, a lady called Mary Jo Kopechny, I think it's her name was. He was probably drunk. And he drove over the bridge to Chappaquiddick. He didn't follow the road. and went off the bridge into the water and he managed to escape from the car, but she didn't. And he uh, only informed the police, I think it was about 10 hours later, that he'd had this accident. Unfortunately, she died. Some people believe that she probably would have been, uh, would live for at least 30 minutes after going into the water because of the, the airlocks. But uh, he didn't seek help at the time uh, and only went to the police uh, 10 hours later. Yeah, so that's really what Chappaquiddick is known for. He was the, the third Kennedy brother who would have um, yeah. probably been standing uh, for president and probably would have uh, probably would have been president had it not been for that accident. But what it also tells you that places like Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket, which I've not been to, are for the well-to-do. Oh, they are for the very wealthy. That's right. I mean, you can, as a, a non-wealthy person, you can go there. You know, you might want to do a day trip rather than stay overnight, but that you know it is definitely uh, Cape Cod is the more affordable vacation place, and uh, you know if you go to Martha's Vineyard, you better have saved up a little bit of money. The folklore that a man had three daughters, his eldest child Elizabeth, he named after the first island, Elizabeth Island. His second daughter Martha, you know she saw some wild grapes. Uh, so he named the second island uh, Martha's Vineyard. Uh, and he had a third uh, daughter called Nancy. And there was only one island left. So Nan took it. 
I was waiting for that to come, Julian. <laughs> so that is a terrible joke, isn't and it? And you never laugh at your own um, jokes, Julian. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I shouldn't. I haven't been to Nantucket. Uh, Nantucket used to be the home for the whaling industry. Uh, you know, there was uh, a lot of money in hunting whales in the 19th century for their oil and their blubber. And that was, uh, you know, the home. I think you can still do whale watching from Nantucket and other places in uh, Cape Cod. You know, Martha's Vineyard, I've been there. It was lovely. You know, really beautiful islands, you know, very well preserved. You know, really uh, idyllic. Plenty of good seafood as well. My memory of it, because... Yeah, I mean, they're right in the middle of the seas. You know, I think they still do have fishing communities there. Did you have anything else to say about Cape Cod? Well, a, c- a, c- a couple of things. Um, one of its claims to fame, of course, is where Marconi delivered the first transatlantic wireless message. So, so right. there's a degree mm-hmm. of his history to it. I was also going to say, we stayed at Chatham Bars. Going back to the weather, weather is very variable. It can be nice one minute. Oh, yeah. And terrible the next. So, in a sense, if you, you right. have to be prepared for all weathers there because it can be very warm, right. can be very cold, can be very hot, can be very wet. Almost very typical British, no two days are the same. That's one of the things which, to me, I mean, I, I'm not saying it is British, but I think there are some things there which, which have in common with a British uh, upmarket seaside resort. It's upmarket, isn't it? Oh, yes. so, apart from Hyannis, it's not. It's not cheap. There's no sort of kiss me. Quick Absolutely. Or, yeah. If if you've seen the film Jaws, you know before the shark eats people, it's a very idyllic scene that they uh, that they portray there of uh, you know what it's like to be there on the beach in the summer. And, and, and I suspect deliberately have maintained that feel. They've not allowed this sort of commercialism you'd expect New Jersey or you know Vegas. Right. It's a holiday destination where you're going to somewhere which is expensive, really nice hotels. Right. You'll need a car. You, you travel around places. Yeah, you need a car. You you couldn't do it without a car, I don't think. I spent significant percentage of population of holiday homes there. So, as I said yes. earlier, at certain times of the year it's very busy. In other terms, I suspect it's quite empty. We once went there out of season, and it, it wasn't a it wasn't a great experience. Um, you know, there's one time to go, and that's the summer, in my view. Yeah, we we went in October, and it was. I liked it because a lot of places weren't open. It was small, it was nice. I suspect in the summer, driving could be quite, um, what's not difficult, but there'd be lots of cars. I think driving on a Friday evening or a Sunday evening, that's when it's difficult. Because that's when people go away for the weekend. Mm. You know, a bit like they do for the Hamptons from New York. Friday evening and Sunday evening, you should avoid those two times. So let's give it a mark, shall we? Mm, Yes, okay. Um, I'm going to score it four. But on the basis of the, the scenery and the climate, mm-hmm. it's definitely a, a vacation where you want to relax uh, and you want to do things at easy pace, you know, and you, you want some downtime. What I would say to a British visitor, you need to combine it with something. So if you're going to go and stay in time, say, right. in Boston, then a week in Cape Cod would be a nice thing to do. That was one of your bases. Right. You wouldn't just go there on its own, I don't think. Or you, if you did, you might be somewhat disappointed. Yeah, you, if you were British, you wouldn't just spend your whole time there yeah. at Cape Cod, I suspect. I'll give it a three. feel the same way about it as you. I just have higher standards. Yeah, and I think it's a great beach experience. But I think there are other great beach experiences all the way down the East Coast. 
So if you go to Delaware, if you go to North Carolina, if you go to South Carolina, they've all got their beach communities there. And many of them are absolutely delightful. For me, I really like Cape Cod, but there are other places you can get a similar experience. That's why I'm going to give it a three. If you've been to a couple of cities and you want some relaxation, Cape Cod will be a great place to get that relaxation. Yeah, I agree. Julian, museums. I know that you... Well, no, we're talking, it's very specific. It's small-town US museums, isn't it? Well, it is, but I'm going to come on to that. I'm going to say, because you're a man who regularly visits museums. How, how many, conservatively, how many museums do you think you have visited? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it has to be thousands. Okay, okay. I love a museum. So what's really great about America is... Any place with more than five people will have a museum, won't it? So, so absolutely, yeah. Whatever you think, this museum, you know, museums, the ability to create a museum over things you didn't even knew would be in a museum. Tell our listeners some of your favourite ones, Julian. Go on, let's whet their appetite. Well, I think in episode one of this podcast, I talked about the Prairie Museum that we had been to in North Dakota. So I won't regale them with that. But if they want to listen, that's episode one. Um, I'm going to talk about one museum in particular, not because it's the most outstanding museum. It just is fairly typical. So it's in a place called International Falls, which is on the border between in Minnesota in the US and Canada. It's a very difficult place to live. They have extreme cold in the winter, very normal for them to have minus 50 degrees centigrade, you know, minus 50 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. And then in the summer, it can go up to, it's regularly over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, 38, 40 degrees centigrade. Uh, and indeed, International Falls once had a difference of 100 degrees in consecutive days. So one day it was cold as anything where you needed industrial clothing and the next day it was hot, too hot to go outside. You know, this is a difficult place to live. Uh, it's a logging community. So what they do is they cut down the trees and then they mulch all of the tree up for their paper business and there's this sort of potpourri smell which permeates the you know the whole environment up there it's, you know it smells like you know you're in a potpourri factory so i went to the museum there and its full name was the Ching county historical museum and bronco nagurski museum didn't really mean anything to me and it was in three parts uh, so the first part was the kind of history of the local people from throughout the ages. So they had some exhibits on the native people. Uh, this is a group of people in the uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries called voyageurs uh, who were part of the fur trade, who basically took furs from one part and canoed them to, to other parts of the US. So there's a big history of this group of people called the voyageurs. There was uh, another area on the colonizers, the, the, the gold prospectors, the people who would uh, come to this place to make their fortune. And then finally, there was the, an area on the industrialists who, who built the paper mill. All of these towns, they've got local historians who obviously intelligence, got time on their hands, and they like spending their time researching you know, the history of the place that they live in. Uh, and then there, there's a second part of the museum, which was my favourite part of the museum, which was looking at 20th century artefacts. Uh, 
given that somewhere it's very cold, they had some, you know, some very early Polaris snowmobiles. Uh, they had a 1910 fire engine. Uh, they had a very unusual collection of um, electric vibrators. Apparently, this was quite a big product in America in the early 20th century. I didn't know this. These electric vibrators were sold as medical devices. Apparently, they had other leisure uses as well, Michael. I've not seen that type of collection in the Vatican. You know, they tend to keep their electric vibrators under lock and key. You know, somebody put the time and attention into, you know, something as esoteric as those subjects. And then the third part of this museum where was this a local boy who'd made good uh, called uh, Bronco Nugurski. And I, I confess I'd never heard of him. Uh, but apparently in the 1930s, he was possibly the greatest athlete of that time. When he was at high school, the high school he played with wasn't a very good high school. So he didn't win a single game of football when he was at high school. But despite that, he got a scholarship to the local university. That university did very well. And then he went to play for the, the Chicago professional team. Uh, and he was so good, apparently, that the opposition team, they used to, to bring him down. He was so big and strong that they had one player who would trip him up. And then there are two other players who would, you know, try and bring him down. And then the rest of the team just dropped, you know, jumped on top of him. He was so good. If you didn't do that, he just got the ball and he just powered his way through until there was a touchdown. And one opposing coach said that, honestly, the only way he knew to stop him was to shoot him. So uh, he was so good. And he had a great career after, you know, he went into wrestling and, he came back to his hometown and they had this, this person I'd never heard of. I'm sure if you're a, a football aficionado, you would know him. But they were very proud of their local boy and they, they really had a, a whole bit of the museum, quite a large uh, bit of the museum devoted to his life, which, uh, which I liked. So as I look at that museum, it was very local and there were things that I learned in that museum that there was no way I could learn anywhere else other than that, in that museum. And in fairness, you do cover in some detail the museum in your book, don't you? So I do, yes, yeah. Mm. To sum up, why do you like it before I, I move on to my experience of, of, of museums in the States? Small museums I like because they're passionate local people who want to tell a story. And so they tell a story which they think is important. And usually, after I've been to the museum, I agree with them that that museum is important you usually at that museum have very knowledgeable curators of the museum. If you go into the Vatican, you know, you try and get a curator and you ask questions. I mean, that's just not done, is it? Whereas in a local museum, the person who's curated it is probably there at the museum and they're, they're more than happy to chat about their passion. And they have a very strong pride in their community. And, and local historians are very important. Yeah, those are some of the things that I like about them. And they're usually manageable in size. I mean, the Vatican is a great museum, for example. Or the British Museum is another great museum. But their scope and size is just too much for the average brain, or anyone's brain, to really take in place. Where at a local museum, you know, it's always manageable. It's always something which, in 90 minutes, you can learn a lot more than, than when you went in there. I agree 100%. It's a real opportunity to talk to a local person uh, who will talk to you with some pride about the collection or the museum. So, absolutely. The second thing, though, Julian, is I'm going to say is I like them to be somewhat weird. 
They don't have to be, yes. you know, um, they don't have to be serious about themselves. So, so I'm going to take you, Julian, to one of my favourites in Douglas. Douglas, Wyoming. Okay. Mm-hmm. I've not been there. As we hinted, of course, it's a Douglas Railroad Museum. Okay. Excellent. Uh, and effectively what it is, you've got a cabin and then probably about five or six railway carriages that you can go in. So not an extensive collection. Obviously, if you're a train aficionado, we're seeing. But that's not its only attraction. Do you know what Douglas is famous for, Julian, in Wyoming? Whereabouts in Wyoming oh, is I, it? I don't even know where it is. I would say the middle of Wyoming. I, 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 middle of Wyoming, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I mean, many of them were famous for things like gold. Was it a gold town? No, no. It's famous for the jackaloupe. The what? The jackaloupe. Do you know what jackaloupe is, Julian? Not a clue. It's a myth. I assume it's one of these words that you've horribly mangled. No, no. J-A-C-K-A-L-O-P-E. The jackaloop. Never heard of it. It's a mythical beast. With It's a rabbit with antlers. And indeed, outside the museum, there's a huge replica of a jackaloop. You know, like an eight-foot rabbit. Uh, okay. And it actually... Well, actually, strange enough, just as an interlude to that... At the museum I just described in International Falls, outside the museum, there was this huge statue of, oh, I've forgotten the name of the character. Basically, he was the patron saint of forest fires. It was during the time of COVID and somebody put a big mask on him. It was this like 20 foot creature, which was telling people not to set fires in woods. And the jackaloot was a, a thing created by a guy called Douglas Hernick. I presume that may be related okay. to Douglas, that in the 1930s, where he and his brother started stuffing rabbits and sticking antlers on them, um. set about creating this myth that this creature was in Wyoming. And, and, and what it was actually obviously a tool to get tourists to come to Wyoming. The Douglas Railway And so they're a bit of Wyoming with this, with this mythical creature. Yeah, so that's the first one. So my second one is the, the fossil cabin. Now, I was doing my planning... And I could see, and, and you look at the map in Wyoming, you know, there's not a lot there, roads and nothing else. And then there's this dinosaur house, a dinosaur house. And if I said to you it's made of 5,796 dinosaur bones, it's 29 feet by 19, built in 1932, and exactly like the Douglas Museum, it was a ploy to attract tourists. Sadly, when the interstate came, they bypassed it, and now it's in the middle of nowhere as as dinosaur house. And the bones actually did come from dinosaurs. Yeah. They were dinosaur bones. They were. Yeah. They were. yeah, there are lots of places in America where you can see dinosaurs because they're usually the middle of nowhere, and so they were so well preserved until you know the last century or so. So that was a house built of dinosaur bones. Excellent. Yeah. And, and so you drive for hours. You know, you go off the main route right. and you get there and you say, oh, that's a house built of dinosaur boats. Okay, get back in the car and drive on. <laughs> so, 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 be water. So, it's definitely worth seeing, but it takes you a long time to get there. And all you see is a house and then you drive off. Most of the time, you are driving from A to B and you're just making a short yeah. detour to go and see something on the way. And I mean, that's a fairly standard American thing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And, and so, 
and why I do encourage visitors to go off the interstate because when you get to these towns, most of them will have a sign that sort of advertises the local museum. Right. And they will try mm-hmm. to create some claim to fame. I think we've been there before, like, you know, the world's biggest hockey stick or, you know, uh, right. the world's biggest donut or whatever. Which I think we established was the world's second biggest hockey stick. A lot of the museums are ways of getting people to come into towns. And therefore, right. to make it more memorable, they have to make these outrageous claims of being the biggest and the best in some obscure right. thing. So why do you like these local museums? For the point you said, Julian, which is there'll almost certainly be a local person there, very welcoming. Then they will say, what can I tell you about the museum? And you can have, I had this conversation about, you know, I'd never heard of a jackaloop. And this woman went into, well, this is what Douglas is famous for. In the hotel, you can see a stuffed one. You know, so you really get the chance to talk to a local person. And they always talk with some pride. I'm also going to say right. they're always very, very interested in where you've come from and why you've come, right. you know. So it's not like um, a stuffy museum. You, you're talking to somebody who's no. from the area. By the way, they're a great source of places to go and eat, places to stay, right. or, you know, uh, routes you should take or routes you shouldn't take. Walking tourist information boards. That's one of the things I like mm-hmm. them. And, and secondly, it is, it's just interesting, particularly past America. Because, again, it's not a country that has lots of old relics, doesn't it? So, so they have to work harder no. around trying to generate your interest in things. And I like that. Right. But I actually really like that, you know, because usually there, there is a, you know, there is a Native American history, but, you know, that usually, that often is very poorly yeah. documented. Getting a bit better, but I think historically it's poorly documented. A lot of it is stuff from the last hundred yeah. years at the Prairie Museum in North Dakota, I'd never seen an iron lung before. Mm-hmm. I knew I'd read about them, but I'd never seen one. And it you know, wasn't until I went to that museum that I saw an example of an iron lung. And I thought, ah, right, that's not really portable at all, is it? So, you know, I think there is a lot of value in documenting things which are relatively recent rather than things which are maybe two, 3,000 years old. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't disagree. And, and I, I think... What they try to do is generate an interest, and, and normally the person themselves um, are, are very passionate about what they're talking about. So they're, they're a good way to spend, I would say, an hour or 90 minutes to break a journey. That's right, yeah. Anything else on small-town museums? Any other favourites you've got, Julian? Obviously, you've been to a lot. I've been to a lot. I, I, I've noticed one thing recently. Really, since the kind of um, Me Too movements and the Black Lives Matters and, you know, sort of social issues become uh, more talked about here, I've noticed that a lot of these smaller museums have made great efforts to make sure their museums are more inclusive than perhaps they have historically been. So that's something I've noticed as a change they've gone through and they've, uh, you know, they've really tried to... um, Make it, you know, all of the descriptions a little bit more inclusive. I will always make a point if I've got some spare time and I'm in a town, got an hour to spend, I'll, I will always go into the local museum and, and, you know, and see what there is on offer there. It's usually free or very small cost. Invariably get a good conversation with somebody. And you'll probably be the only person there in the museum. Yeah, certainly at the International Falls one, and we were there a long time. I think there was one, only one other person there during our entire visit, and there were two curators there. 
can't remember how much we paid, like two or three dollars or something. This was not an economic viable uh, museum. (laughs) Yeah, but terrific. Actually, I'm assuming you, you refer to people as curators. I'm saying, I think in the main, they're just volunteers, the people who've retired who uh, are spending the morning helping. I don't think it's a, a paid enterprise at all. Would you say so? Economically, it can't be paid, can it? Because this, unless it's being subsidized by somebody. So um, I didn't like to ask really whether they were paid or not. But I did notice that before we came, they were doing something to one of the exhibits. They were, you know, making some sort of change or developing some new exhibit they were trying to do. They're not only there helping people understand the museum, but they're also curating the next thing that they want to change. Okay. We're giving small town museums a big plus. We're encouraging people to stop, if they're in a town, to stop and go to a small town museum give it an hour of their time and hopefully they'll get something positive from the experience. And so what we want our listeners to do, can they tell us about the best small town museum they've visited? Let's, let's, let's give some yes. of these places some um, publicity. See, that's a great idea. That concludes this episode, Julian. Shall we do the outro? Uh, Julian's about to go on a grand tour, aren't you, Julian? I am, yes. You didn't tell us much last time about your book, are you able to tell us much about the Grand Tour? Or is that I also can. a secret? Yes, I can tell you. Yeah, so, you know, we tend to take a Europe trip every year. And over the last few years, we've uh, taken Europe trips uh, and we have taken Americans with us. So, you know, my daughter's friends. Uh, so this year is no exception. So daughter number one's boyfriend is coming with us. Uh, he, he was in the highway eateries, boyfriend number one. So he's coming. And daughter number two's uh, friend, is she's coming. And we are doing a grand tour. So we are going to, shall I start the list? Yes. So we're going to Devon, London, Paris, Budapest, Vienna, Venice, Rome, Ischia, Naples, Puglia, Dubrovnik, KOTOR, Germany, Switzerland, Southern France, London. How long is the Grand Tour, Julian? That seems to be a lot uh, of places. It's, it's just over a couple of months. Just over a couple, a couple of months. months. Gosh, yeah. And I think what we've done for the podcast is uh, we've been busily doing extra podcasts, haven't we? we? Have. So we are. I'm not doing any podcasts while I'm away because I want to enjoy my holiday. We will have done enough podcasts up until the end of July so that we can release one every. Uh, you know, so we've got two a month. And I, for one, am looking forward to boyf- uh, daughter number one's boyfriend's view of European eateries. Because if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't the Waffle House his favourite? So uh, he may find it a bit strange in Europe with our eateries. Boyfriend number one has not travelled outside the US, um, and it's an important trip for him, I think, because you know everything will be so foreign to him, and everything will be so different, and and the food is obviously one thing which is going to be massively different. So we're hoping that over a period of a couple of months or so, uh, he's going to ease into that there are other ways of, of, of doing things that, you know, he thinks are normal in America. Yeah, we're really looking forward to that. Good. And so you, you hinted at things we've already recorded. We are now going to talk about uh, American summer camps. I've recorded but not edited that one. So that's uh, daughter number one and daughter number two talking about the American summer camp experience. And we're going to be encouraging British uh, teenagers and young 20-year-olds to come to America and be counsellors at summer camps. Okay, that's good. 
And I've got two interviews. I'm going to be interviewing uh, Simon Gosney, who's just back from his Amtrak train journey uh, on the East Coast. So we'll be talking about that. And I'm also going to be talking with Grant, who's an American exiled in London, to get his take on all things British from an American perspective. That'll be an interesting thing. And you've also did an interview, didn't you, Julian? And I've done an interview as well with uh, Wendy Horgan, who uh, lives in uh, in Boston and talking about her experience as a, as a Scot uh, in America. I've done all the recordings now. All I've got to do is the editing. Okay. So, uh, so hopefully that will take us up until the end of July, and then you and I can get back together in uh, in August, and you know, carry on our normal podcast schedule. And no doubt, coming back with lots of fun stories of Americans in Europe. That's right. So, to conclude this episode, Julian, it's goodbye from you, and it's it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. <laughs>